Hey, this is Tim McCurdy, and welcome to Vinepair's Cocktail College, a weekly deep dive into classic cocktails that goes beyond the recipe with America's best bartenders. No bar ever went broke selling blue drinks, says today's guest, Garrett Richard, the chief cocktail officer at New York's Sunken Harbor Club and a 2022 Vinepair 50 winner. I think this is a really interesting idea, especially viewed through the lens of everything we do here at Cocktail College. And there's no better time to explore it than an episode covering the Blue Hawaii, which is, arguably, the world's most iconic blue cocktail. I mean, the color's right there in the name. What strikes me as interesting about Garrett's statement is that, if it is true, why then have modern cocktail bars overwhelmingly shunned some glow-in-the-dark, artificially colored ingredients like blue curacao? And why do others, such as Campari or green chartreuse, get a pass? These questions don't even scratch the surface of the blue Hawaii itself, though, which boasts a 60-odd year history and was invented by the late, great Harry Yee, a pioneer of tropical and tiki drinks culture who sadly passed away last December. Digging into the details of the Blue Hawaii with Garrett also gives us the chance to consider the relative merits of flash blending and explore when and how vodka can be an essential ingredient in tiki cocktails. That's right, vodka. It's the Cocktail College Podcast listener and it's brought to you today, as always, by the Vine Pair Podcast Network. We're in the Cocktail College studio the Vine Pair headquarters studio. I should say we're in the C-suite, though, because today we have Garrett Richard in the house, the chief cocktail officer at Sunken Harbor Club. Garrett, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, it's great to be here in the uh, C-suite. <laughs> <laughs> we're close to a bar, so I feel like this is the A-suite, actually. The here. Ex- yeah, definitely. And, um, you know... We like to have that bar there so that when our guests come in, they feel like they're in their natural habitat. Yeah, and, you know, very easy transition. Yeah, exactly. Feel at home. Um, sometimes it is a little, you know, it's fairly early in the morning today, I think, for a bartender schedule that we're recording. But um, how, yeah, how's it going? Yeah, early for bartenders. It's a very late for for uh, radio podcast, yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> so some, know. yeah, some somewhere we're in the middle. Yeah, you know. Um, Great one for us today. The Blue Hawaii. Cannot wait to get into this drink. First of all, though, this is probably one of those where people already know you for tiki drinks, for tropical drinks, so this is a perfect selection for us, right? But maybe it's not a drink that everyone is familiar with or they know all the components. So do you want to just start by telling us what those are? And also, there might be some folks going... Wait, it's the Blue Hawaii? I thought it's the Blue Hawaiian. Is it the same thing? You know, what's going on there? So why don't you tell us all of that to get us going? Yeah, there's a lot of confusion um, surrounding sort of the history. What actually is the platonic ideal of of this type of cocktail? Um, And I think that's sort of by design, right? Because the main intention of the drink is you're drinking a blue drink, right? So the, the idea is very casual to you know, outsiders that aren't making that drink. It's like, as long as it's blue and it's uh, tall, you're good to go, right? That's the, you know, because you see you see blue drinks at, you know, TGI Fridays and, you know, that's during the early craft cocktail revival, that was sort of the joke, right? Was that the blue drinks are going away and, you know, we're going to get back yeah. to more serious things, right? But the fact is, is that the history of the drink, the history of Blue Curacao is way more you know, layered and interesting than most people, you know, give it credit for. But um, really the creator of the Blue Hawaii, Harry Yee, is the founder of like what actual Hawaiian drinks are. Harry was hired by Henry J. Kaiser, who was a industrialist who wanted to build basically his own version of the Cocoa Palms in Hawaii. And he built the Hawaiian Village, which was eventually bought by Hilton. But Mm -hmm. Um, Harry was hired there as a bartender and at first he was making pink ladies and planters punches and things that were, you know, popular stateside in California and, you know, the major metropolitan cities of, uh, the continental United States. And 
he realized that there weren't Hawaiian drinks that, that, you know, reflected the, you know, produce, the visual style of Hawaii, and he wanted to correct that. And he is not only responsible for the Blue Hawaii, but the Tropical Itch. He is one of the parents of the banana daiquiri. That's a, you should do that episode. It's much more complicated, but, <laughs> but he was at least somebody that sold it to people and made it popular. And, you know, the Tropical Itch, also a huge cocktail in its own right. But the Blue Hawaii is probably his most famous creation. And, you know, it was made for a resort. So the cocktail really was designed for that super high volume turn and burn style that like resorts have, which Mm -hmm. was, it was really a built drink. It was almost like a highball. It was, um, sour mix, which he was most likely making. I don't think they were importing it from the United States, Right, you know, that would be largely impractical back then. Um, so it was a sour mix that most likely was made in house. Um, pineapple juice, the blue curacao, and then, vodka and rum. And it's actually a really interesting use of vodka because, you know, Harry has said many times that if you don't use vodka in the drink, it's incorrect. And really, to me, I think it's, it shows how you can take a very wet cocktail and then lengthen it using vodka. And, you know, it's like, if you do, if you do it just like, if you make the original spec, with just white rum, it is a little sticky. It is a little bit too juicy. And the idea I think is that, you know, you're just drying out the rest of the mix with that. So mm-hmm. it's, 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 it's something that I've used in other cocktails where it's like, okay, I have all these like really interesting ingredients and like, how can we expand upon that? And like David Wandrich has written about this as well. It's like seeing like early uses of vodka in like, um, cocktails that use like interesting liqueurs like Benedictine and, you know, cherry herring and, and, you know, using the vodka to basically make the Benedictine the star. Right. And very much so Harry Yee was doing that with the blue curacao. It's such an interesting concept, I should say though, too, because, you know, I feel like some people will think that, okay, you have rum and then you're adding vodka. So are you not just diluting the flavor of rum or also like making it taste like ethanol essentially, right? Or like alcohol. But the whole idea of a good quality vodka is that it is neutral. It delivers the booze, right? But it doesn't taste like alcohol. Like that's what a good vodka is for me. And they're out there. And I think, you know, the other thing to keep in mind is that, you know, Harry was most likely using product that is different now. You know, he called for a white Puerto Rican, but, you know, most likely not as aggressively column stilled as the white rums that we were getting, you know, uh, that we're getting now. Yeah. And, you know, uh, you have to remember that Bacardi started as a pot still product in Cuba. And then, you know, over time, because of the rise of vodka and lighter spirits, that that became more aggressively rectified, right? Oh. So if you think about it that way... It, he was most likely diluting something that was a lot more interesting yeah. also and essentially making more of a, a white rum that we know today. Cause there's sort of a split in white rums now, right? Where there's, you have these aged white rums like Denison and uh, plantation three star that go through like some, you know, heavy, you know, like three to four year aging and then they filter it out through charcoal. And then, you know, you have other white rums that are much lighter, like Don Q Cristal, mm-hmm. you know, um, but back then, you know, he, he was probably taking something that was fairly interesting and like mm. lengthening it out. Interesting as well that just compared to tequila, you know, where I feel like Cristalino. Folks oh, sure. are, you yeah. know, you know, you're you're creating a clear spirit, but it's actually an aged tequila, right? The folks are more up in arms about that than say maybe when it does happen with rum. I do find that interesting. Of course, there are other styles of white rum, right? Like Jamaican ones that like are so full of character and probably very highly alcoholic. Right, like too. Ray and Nephew. Right? Like Ray and Nephew, yeah. right. Um, there's another one, I'm blanking on it. Oh, like Rumfire. Rumfire, yeah, that's rum exactly bar, it. Yeah. 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 The point is, though, that no one's up in arms and being like Plantation Three Star, like, why are they doing that? Like, that's a phenomenal cocktail rum. It's like a very good all-rounder, in my opinion. And no one's like, hey, but why are you like, why are you filtering it? Like, what's the point? Do you no, know what I, I mean? I almost think you need to make like cocktails today, you need one of those like heavier white rums and lighter white rums, right? 
Um, and it's nice to have that option, mm-hmm. you know. <laughs> it's it's funny, you know, that we do that so often with, with rum-based drinks too. I'm just curious here. Have you ever done that with a margarita where you're like, I'm going to use three different Blancos and try and, you know, like how folks would do with their daiquiri, but done I, that with I have tequila? recently at home actually because I've been trying to, um, kind of goes a little off subject, but, um, you know, I've, I've been, since I've worked at existing conditions, um, you know, I, most of my syrups are all adjusted to certain levels of sugar. And I've been trying to do that for the Tommy's margarita where it's like actually measure the, uh, inherent sugar in the agave nectar, cut it with water and then, you know, have a 50 bricks agave nectar. So I've been playing, uh, recently at home just with like, okay, what is it like with Tapatio? What is it like with Siete Leguas? You mm-hmm. know? So yeah, no, I do. I definitely. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> that definitely is off topic. And I do want to bring us back to the topic here of Harry Yee too, because, you know, to take us a little bit behind the scenes here, we've had this recording on, you know, on the books for some time, but, um, you know, unfortunately, real, real sad to hear recently in between the time when we first said we were going to do this drink, we learned that Harry had sadly passed away. So I wonder if you can just share some more words about, you know, yeah. this person's career. And also, it was 104? 104. I mean, Remarkable. that's a great innings. Yeah. And I'm sure many lives lived in that time. But yeah, do you want to just, I don't know, pay maybe a little tribute to Harry yeah. there too? I mean, some of the really cool things that he's contributed to cocktail culture that we take for granted is uh, he was the first person to add an orchid to a cocktail. Um, most likely the Blue Hawaii, although um, it's questionable which which one it was. Um, but the idea was, uh, it was actually a practical reason. Uh, they were originally garnishing drinks at the Hawaiian village with uh, sugarcane sticks. And he, he said to a couple of journalists that, you know, it would really annoy him because people would chew on the sugarcane sticks, put them in ashtrays, and then the ashtrays would have a bunch of melted sugar and, you know, tobacco and, you know, just make a mess. So he's yeah. like, I got to do something else. And the orchid came into play because he was like, it's easier to clean up, right? <laughs> <laughs> do orchids grow quite freely out there in, in Hawaii or what? I mean, it's my understanding that it's pretty pretty difficult plant to look after. It can be, but I think, you know, if... It was available and then he found a use for it, you know, then it's, you know, he created a market for it, right? Yeah. <laughs> and he was, he was the master of sort of the creative garnish, like the, you know, the Instagram garnish game that we have right now would not be the same if it wasn't for Harry. He, he, you know, garnished the tropical itch with a back scratcher, <laughs> which, you know, back in the day would have been all over Instagram, you know, yeah. the first time that happened. Um, he also was the first person to use a cocktail umbrella. He used it in a cocktail called the Top of Punch, which was lost for a number of years. Jeff Berry was able to get um, that recipe and another interesting recipe called the Chimp in Orbit uh, fairly recently for his um, uh, his reprint of Sip and Safari, so, mm-hmm. which is really cool. But um, yeah, I mean, the cocktail umbrella and the orchid, like, that I mean, if you just did that, that and n- didn't even create any recipes, you'd be already like good, good to go. You know? <laughs> and the tropical itch is a really, you know, like that cocktail has a really interesting use of bourbon and rum together. And there are different versions of it, but Harry's, you know, planting it in American whiskey and doing an American whiskey tropical cocktail in Hawaii, like really cool stuff. And mm-hmm. you know, it goes back to his philosophy of like I wanted to make drinks that reflected Hawaii. And he didn't, he's, he's said many times that a Kulehau, which was the sort of local spirit at the time is too strong for tourists. So it's like, okay, how do we create drinks that are Hawaiian that tourists will want, but are still reflective of, you know, where we're living. And that's amazing. Yeah. yeah. Really, really forward thinking. And yeah, just, you know, tribute out to, to him here. And I'm glad that we're, we're covering this drink now. I mean, it's the, you know, it's, it feels apt for the moment. Yeah. Um, also, you mentioned there, I don't know, I have, a, I have a question for you yourself as a bartender because, you know, you've long been involved in the kind of tiki and, and, and tropical, you know, cocktail realm. And it's funny that since the cocktail renaissance, like a big part of it has always been this kind of thirst for historical knowledge and people finding like who can find the original recipe of this and whatnot. And it feels like Tiki does take that to the next level. You were talking about Jeff, you know, there, you know, uncovering a recipe 
is that something that really appeals about this style of drinks for you and this, you know, subsector of cocktails for you? Is like, is that what attracted you to that? Or is that just something that's interesting about it too? No, it's definitely attractive to me. And I think really it's that it's a puzzle because a lot of those cocktails over time changed so much. I mean, you know, you think about like some of the early Don the Beachcomber drinks, um, most likely the grapefruit that he was calling for is very different now. Um, the syrup, you know, the sweetness of the syrups are different uh, than most likely than what we're using and like all the rums. So really it's a matter of like interpreting the spirit of what it is and then trying to get it into today's canon and how it, you know, how it works behind today's bars. And then also just like making sure that in making any changes that someone who loves the drink and loves the idea of the drink doesn't, you know, doesn't see anything like the change, yeah. the, the edits are invisible. Yeah. That's at least for me, like my philosophy. Mm-hmm. And especially with this drink, I tried to, you know, make enough edits to it where it's like, I'm, I really like it. It's a, it's a good drink. And like, even if you can't see the color, <laughs> it's, it's delicious. But like anyone who's a fan of a blue Hawaii would just be like, yeah, that's a blue Hawaii. They wouldn't mm-hmm. be like, oh, that's, you know, their version that has these, you know, X, X amount of changes. Right. Mm-hmm. Let's do the old Eiffel 65. Let's get into blue here for a second. You know, <laughs> sorry, that's corny. Uh, but you mentioned at the beginning the, the, you know, cocktail renaissance people are this this joke that we're getting away from blue drinks what about now though i mean i, th- I think of our friends down there at temple bar and their blue negroni and whatnot and that's kind of shocking or whatnot w- what is the state of blue drinks in 2020 probably three by the point this episode yeah. goes out <laughs> well i think people figured out that you know most orange liqueurs are colored after distillation right you know um they come out usually as a clear product, you know, Cointreau is probably the best example. Um, you can get some color from aging, like Grand Marnier, but, you know, a lot of Curacao's go through some coloring process. And I think, you know, because that knowledge is there, I think, you know, bartenders are a little more open to being like, okay, look, like we, we understand that certain products that we all know and love are also artificially colored. It's not necessarily the worst thing in the world to use something that's, you know, unnaturally blue. Yeah. Um, and it, you know, no one goes poor selling blue drinks. Like they are very <laughs> visually appealing. Right. Um, but it's interesting to look at sort of the history of Blue Curacao. I think the general narrative is that, you know, it, it was a product in the 50s. Somebody came to Harry and was like, I have a new bottle for you. Try it out. The fact is, is that in 1912, Bulls created this product. And originally it was called Creme de Ciel. So it was, it was a cream of the sky. And the idea was that, you know, this was a sky blue colored liqueur. Mm-hmm. It was it was still a Curacao, but they were trying to market it that way. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, before Prohibition in the United States, it didn't have much time, right? It was only a couple of years. And, you know, this is pre, you know, communication revolution. So it, it didn't really go anywhere. But post-Prohibition, you did have... Um, couple sightings in cocktail books. The Cafe Royal Royal Cocktail Book, which is a UK Bartenders Guild book, mm-hmm. um, has quite a bit of uh, Blue Curacao drinks. And a lot of them are gin-based. Oh, really? There's Blue Lady, there's a Blue Star, which Blue Star was like a, a gin Kina Lalay cocktail. And it's interesting to think that, you know, if the Blue White didn't exist, most likely historically, that Blue Curacao would be probably associated with gin rather than this cocktail, which is kind of interesting. That's and then you crazy. see you see other drinks, and m- maybe it's because they didn't have access to Bulls, Blue Cur- uh, Creme de Ciel or Blue Curacao later, that you see people adding blue food coloring to Cointreau <laughs> in, in certain recipes, which is interesting. Like the Savoy mm-hmm. cocktail book has wow. some, some of those. Um, and then, you know, even before that, in the 19th century, you have Parfait Amour, which is, you know, sort of a purple-ish, you know, citrus vanilla, you know, cordial that turned cocktails this really interesting, you know, very 19th century color. Mm-hmm. And um, 
Don Beachcomber used that. He used it in his um, Royal Daiquiri mm-hmm. cocktail, which, um, you know, Brother Cleve had a I riff on. I was just going to say, uh, um, Brother Cleve yeah. had a riff on. Yeah, the Stardust. The Stardust, yeah. that is a wonderful drink. I think you can actually get that down there. I think they just put it on the new menu down at Lullaby, uh, Harrison's. Oh, that's Snows. great yeah. to hear. Yeah. yeah. They, they, yeah. Have a, they have a tribute to Brother Cleve on the back of the menu. You actually need to turn the menu around, I would say. So if you, if you find yourself down there, turn over and it's yeah it's the stardust and it's uh it's a very cleave drink by the looks of it yeah i think he switched the lime for lemon that's and, right I think, and, yeah. and and from uh, the original royal daiquiri but it it seems to me like it would it was inevitable that at some point there was going to be a blue orange liquor on the market yeah. <laughs> you know it's like it, it it wanted to exist and then you know it's interesting contemporary contemporaneous to harry um at Bryant's in Milwaukee, they had, um, you know, they were known for the Pink Squirrel, um, the Banshee, but they also did another sort of cream-based, you know, Alexander, you know, ice creamy kind of thing. Uh, they called the Blue Tail Fly, which used mm-hmm. Blue Curacao. So, Dude, you know. I'm thinking we're going to need to get you back for a Blue Curacao episode here because there's a lot more <laughs> uses for it than I think right, we realized. Yeah, the Blue yeah. Lady, I'm, I'm like instantly, I'm like, that. I know what I'm doing later. Um, I, it, it's funny, I ran into a Blue Curacao, I was just in Japan um, about a month ago and I ran into a Blue Curacao drink I've never seen before, which was, it was in the uh, Roosevelt Bar in uh, Disney Sea, which is insane, by the way, because it's in like a, ha- a half scale cruise ship, like a fake cruise ship that you walk in and then it's all like Teddy Roosevelt themed in there. And on the menu, there were like all these, you know, there were a couple of like classics like, uh, you know, Jack Rose and uh, Greyhound and all that stuff. But then, you know, there were a couple of drinks. I was like, I don't know what these are. And one of them was called the skydiving. And then I found through like a Japanese wiki, like a, a, you know, bartender wiki that it was a, um, competition winning drink from 1967 from uh, a bartender named Watanabe who, uh, made, it was just literally white rum, blue curacao, lime cordial. And I was like, that, that's an interesting idea because you could do that now with like Japanese rum. Like there's lots of like little yeah. avenues to play around with to, that. To tinker with that one. Yeah. yeah. That's real cool. Um, to, to tie us up here on the blue curacao, I mean, you mentioned something too, where you're like, look, some bartenders have just come to realize like, yeah, it's all right. It's artificially colored or whatnot. And it's up to you whether you want to use something that is or not. But to bring us back to that blue Negroni, I mean, the Negroni itself, Campari ain't coming out red naturally. Do you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah. So red is fine, blue is not. I don't know. It's it's an interesting one to think about there. Um, but yeah, we'll, we'll hit the pause on the blue Curacao. I think we'll probably come back for another episode on that one. That could be fun. Right. Um, yeah. What about your own relationship with this drink, though, the blue Hawaii? Yeah. When did you first encounter it? And have you had any particularly memorable or notable ones throughout your career? Yeah, I, I encountered it pretty young. You know, I was in in college. I was making cocktails like in my dorm, like messing around. Like, you know, I had some of Jeff's books at the time, um, but uh, I, you know, going out, it was like on menus in like Asian restaurants and and what have you. But and you know, those were whatever, those were just, you know, acceptable, I guess, at the time. But the first, like, craft versions of it that I encountered were sort of like the early neo-tropical bars in New York, which were, but there were uh, iterations at Lani Kai and Painkiller, which then became PKNY. Um, and both were really good. Uh, the PKNY one was very Sasha style, where it was, like, served on a big rock, Um you know, it had lemon juice and a little bit of demerara instead of like doing a sour mix. Um, and it was really good. And then um, Julie Reiner's version uh, leaned into the, you know, debate, which we'll get into later, which is it used a little bit of uh, cream of coconut. So, which is the blue Hawaiian, which we'll, you know, we'll talk about. But um, also really nice. And, um, you know, it's like a nice like compromise where like you used a little bit of the coconut and the creaminess to, you know, give, give that body and give that texture. She also had a frozen version, which was, uh, I think it was called like the 808 state, you know, and that was like at the time that was pretty early with like bars getting like frozen machines. So, mm-hmm. you know, um, but yeah, I liked both of those quite a bit. Um, and 
for me, you know, it was funny that the, the, the next step of where I got obsessed with the blue Hawaii was, uh, having one at the Tiki tea. Mm-hmm. Um, it's when you go to the Tiki tea, it's one of the bigger cocktails you can get. It's like in a big snifter and, um, the move that they do that's really interesting is, well, one, they flash blend it, which was, you know, at the time I was trying to teach myself this technique because it was basically virtually non-existent in New York. Um, you know, in, you know, California, it was much more commonly used, but in the craft world, flash blending was illegal essentially. Okay. <laughs> but, you know, I would go to Tiki Tea to watch them, you know, see it in action, see it in service. Um, but you know, the blue Hawaii, when it's flash blended has a huge head on it because of the, of the pineapple juice in it. And then the move that they did is they would float a little bit of uh, galliano on top, which, you know, it was at the time I was kind of obsessed with that <laughs> liqueur and I was like, yeah, no, I'll take, I'll take the galliano drink. I think it was the only galliano drink on their menu. And for anyone just by the way, who's unfamiliar with the technique of flash blending, do you want to just briefly explain that? Yeah. So essentially what you're doing is you're taking a milkshake mixer, which is going at a very high RPM. And the spindle at the end of it is essentially an electrified swizzle stick. So you build your cocktail in a large tin, like a milkshake tin, or, you know, it could be the large side of a shaker. You're then adding a little bit of crushed ice to the tin and then um, blending it in the blender for like basically three to five seconds, Mm -hmm. really quick. And what's great about it is you're getting a ton of aeration, um, a drop in temperature that's faster than shaking. And um, you're actually getting more water up front, but the idea is that the chill in the water up front, you're going to actually get less on the back end. Okay. Yeah. So it's in reverse of what you would have if this were a shaken drink. Yeah. And I think, you know, the, the thinking for a while in New York was to do the opposite where it was like thinking more about like mint juleps and things, uh, you know, crushed ice drinks that are not, you know, in the Tiki Cannon. And the problem is, is that sometimes you would get crushed ice drinks that had like a giant mountain of it. And that mountain of crushed ice could kill some of the complexities of certain cocktails. You know, if it's a zombie, you pack the ice, yeah. you know, but if it's something that's sort of light and juicy, you know, a dome of ice on top, it's probably going to last maybe five minutes before it starts like leaching way too much water. And the idea is with flash blending is you're really managing a lot of that dilution. It's, it's sort of like the difference between having an old fashioned on a big rock versus like shell ice. Got you know, it. Nice. Uh, in terms of, in terms of water management. Mm-hmm. And then what about maybe say a classic version of this drink, but really dialed in what is it that you're looking for there in terms of the profile? Yeah. Um, well, I think, you know, with all three of those versions, there was like, the, I, I think the platonic ideal of this drink is that you want it to be juicy and fruit forward, but not sweet. And you want layers of citrus because, you know, the idea is that essentially you're getting orange, lemon, lime because you know, the OG sour mix probably had both, right? Mm-hmm. And then pineapple on top of that and pineapple being sort of the larger star of this. And, you know, there's a lot of room to then work within those four fruits playing in harmony with one another. And I think it's sort of this type of drink is sort of the lo- the category that is sort of not thought about a lot mm-hmm. in, you know, tropical bars and, and tiki bars is... Um, you kind of sometimes want that like fruit forward drink that's not, you know, it's not going to be a calorie or sugar bomb, but something that's like not as intense as a Navy Grog or Zombie or Mai Tai, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and at Sunken Harbor Club, uh, I put a basically a yellow version of a Blue Hawaii, uh, which we call the Yellow Tang, where mm-hmm. it replaces the Curacao with a uh, banana. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, and there's a little bit of passion fruit as well, um, just to give it some some other layers to it. But nice. uh, but yeah, the idea that that was sort of a thought experiment of like, what if you did a, bl- a blue Hawaii, but you know, replaced the color with a different color? Yeah, you know, that's cool. Yeah, um, but you know, when I was constructing this spec, I had an I had originally something very different, um, which was I was leaning a little bit more on the tiki tea style, the blue Hawaiian style 
which just to get this out in the open, so the difference yeah. between Blue Hawaiian and Blue Hawaii is that at some point, you know, post-60s, somebody figured out that you can add Blue Curacao to a pina colada, and it looks... You know, it looks nice and it's great. And, and you know, because a blue uh, a pina colada is white, so it's very easy to dye it other things. And, you know, you see this with other variations on the pina colada, like the Lady of Singapore, which has, you know, cherry and, and, and you know, the Miami Vice, which is the most famous probably mm-hmm. riff on it and the lava flow. But um, somebody was like, okay, you can float blue curacao on it. Great. But then that is sort of diametrically opposite of what Harry's drink is, which Harry's is like citrusy, light. Yeah. And then you have this thing that's like heavy, sweet, <laughs> you know, but because the Blue Hawaiian exists, there are lots of guests that assume that that drink has to have some sort of coconut element into it, which mm-hmm. we can get into the spec later. But the point is, is that when I first started specking the Blue Hawaii, I was leaning more on the coconut element. I was leaning more on the stuff that I had seen at Tiki Tea, and I had a completely different version of it that I did at uh, Slowly Shirley for the very first iteration of my uh, pop-up, which was called Exotica. And, you know, it was it was good. There were some fans of it. Um, I served it at the Hukilau in 2017 and, like, got very mixed reviews. And I was like, I think I need to take this back to the drawing board um, kind of let the idea sit for a couple months. I moved my pop-up to Rain's Law Room um, in Midtown where, where I was able to work with an old friend of mine who had worked at Prime Meats. His name is Jimmy Cologne. Um, originally, it was just going to be like a one-time thing on his birthday, and then it turned into, I think we did 10 iterations of Exotica at Rain's over the years, like right before COVID hit. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the second or third one, I was like, yeah, I really want to revisit the Blue Hawaii. I'd also had some people, the very f- first one we did at Rains, ask for the old version. I was like, I don't want to serve that anymore. I, you know, I want to do something different. And so I went back to that uh, concept that we talked about. Like, okay, how do we get these like multiple layers of citrus to be interesting? How do we, you know, reflect the sour mix, but do it in a craft way? And I went to that spec that I had had at Painkiller and just kind of looked at it a little bit more and thought, like, how can I bring my own interpretation to it? So the sour mix got broken up into lemon, fresh lemon juice and then um, a cordial that we make, which at the time we just called lime cordial. I was using it slowly, surely in, in a lot of drinks. Um, now I refer to it as lime punch because it's really, it's not necessarily a cordial. It's a syrup that has oleosaccharum, sugar, and juice and then a little bit of uh, citric and malic acid but the that lime punch syrup gave like all of that those beautiful like sour mixy things but without any of the unpleasant artificial aftertaste to it and it gave a lot of body because it had you know real like lime oleosaccharum in it right yeah um so like that was the key then the the next big leap was okay like do we just do it with vodka and white rum. And I was like, you know, it was, it was nice. It was pleasant. But, um, at the time I was also playing around with doing coconut oil washes on different spirits. And I think we may have just had it lying around for R and D, but I had a bottle of Plymouth that had coconut oil, um, you know, washed into it. Plymouth gin. Yes. Yeah. And the nice thing about the the wash on the Plymouth was it's sort of, you know, when you do a fat wash, you're taking some of the, you know, you're stripping some flavors, right? Sure. And the oil stripped a lot of the sort of, you know, juniper notes of it and left really a lot of just the citrus elements of the Plymouth. Nice. You know, so it was very like citrusy Plymouth finished with coconut. Mm-hmm. And I was like, this is great. We can use this with a white rum. And that can be the base and that can address anyone that wants this to have coconut because it's more now like a whisper of coconut yep. rather than, and, and it doesn't have any sugar element to mm-hmm. it, you know. And we're also adding more character there just in terms of flavor. Yeah. But another thing to consider too, I mean, uh, you're hard pressed to find a vodka above 40% ABV, but Plymouth comes in at what, 47? Maybe it's a little bit lower than that, but do you know what I mean? Like, right, yeah, and, it ups the ABV a little yeah, bit. And, and it's texture too. Yeah, because you're because when you do a fat wash on a spirit, it does add some 
nice little texture to it. And yeah, and I think those two big elements, like figuring out what the sour mix was going to look like and the and then the spirit mix, it was, it was pretty easy after that. It was, mm-hmm. you know, um, just a, we cut down the pineapple um, because when it's not a built drink and we, we wanted it to be flash blended so that it had a little bit more aeration. I yep. liked the, the style that the Tiki Tea was doing in that regard. Um, so we cut the pineapple in half. It was, you know, Harry's was three. Ours was an ounce and a half. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, that really then became the drink. We kept the blue curacao at half an ounce. Um, over time, I was able to figure out how to make that half an ounce like work even more. Like originally, um, we have like a small amount of cane syrup just for body, but now at Sunken Harbor Club, I use gum syrup, which is white. So, you know, it just like the, the, the more you can, it's, I hate having to work on drinks like this where it's like, you have to preserve certain elements for color reasons, Mm. but I've been able to figure out like the maximum amount of certain things where it doesn't turn like green, mm-hmm. you know, cause that's, that's the hard part is, you know, uh, pineapple's yellow. So, <laughs> you know, yellow and blue, you know, yep. but you know, having your spirits be very white and then, you know, having everything else sort of at a, a minimum helps. Yeah. And so just to recap there, just so that, um, cause that's a brilliant ton of information. So just to recap, um, Curacao, blue Curacao is blue Curacao. Uh, yeah. Actually, I'll, we'll hold the, enough. I use the Gaffard normally. The Gaffard, um, right. Although, you know, back in the day when I first started, um, the Senor Curacao is sort of like the best one on the market. And mm-hmm. it's still it's still really nice. So, mm-hmm. you know, there's luckily there's options for good quality uh, mm-hmm. blue Curacao. The Bowles bottle looks good. Um, that's all I'll say. It is, yeah. <laughs> yeah it's yeah. cool graphic design. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, so therefore, and pineapple juice, you're not really messing with, okay, we'll get into the specs later, but the pineapple juice is pineapple we, juice. I mean, it should be fresh. And, right. Um, you know, I, I again, thinking about the spirit of the cocktail, most likely, I, I'm sure at some point, because of volume, the Hawaiian village was probably using stuff from Dole. But, you know, in the beginning, I'm sure that they were getting they were fresh juice, right? Fr- mm-hmm. And the, here's the thing is, is I, I feel like there's a myth out there that uh, fresh pineapple, for some reason, in like certain uh, tiki circles, that it doesn't aerate properly. And it's like, I think that that's from bad technique mm-hmm. in, in terms of flash blending because... You know, as long as as long as you're not using a pineapple that's like green, right? That's not ripe yet. You're that it's the easiest thing to have texture once you flash blend. Like I, yeah. I've, I've never seen that be a problem. Okay. Um, you know, I, yeah. Just treat your fruit properly. Yeah. yeah. Use ripe. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then uh, you know, just again that sweet and sour mix. So you know, your your advice here is basically settle upon maybe a, a mixture that works for yourself. Of course, we're not buying you know something crap, you know, some rubbish, yeah. you know. But um, and that sweet and sour mix would contain you said you know lime, uh, some kind of oleosaccharum, you know, cordial esque. But this is maybe more you know zesty. Yeah, it's a cold processed syrup, and um, it's basically we use a half ounce of lemon and a half ounce of uh, this. Lime punch syrup and mm-hmm. um, that syrup first came about when I was working with Jim Kearns at uh, Happiest Hour and Slowly Shirley he had worked with a pastry chef at the Nomad where it, it help, helping him out with a project he was working on outside of the Nomad um, you know and helping him try to figure out how to make oleo more efficiently how to then use it in its applications he came up with a lemon syrup he called it at the time and then I just sort of took that concept and applied it to lime because, uh, you know, Happiest Hour is a beast. It was a super high volume bar when it opened. And like there was rare times where it was like, OK, let's just make this for fun. It was more like we have to make this many gallons of lemon syrup. But like I would come in on my time off and I'd be like, OK, what if I just made this with lime instead of lemon? And then over the years, I've you know, refined this recipe so that now it has like citric and malic acid, which preserves the bite of the lime indefinitely. Um, you know, there's just little hacks that I've added over the years, but mm-hmm. really it started with, with Jim and, um, we used the lime punch in a drink called the Cleopatra and the swamp fire at slowly, surely, which had some legs at the time. So it was like something I wanted to keep with me. And, you know, when I jumped to Reigns and started working with Jimmy, you know, I showed a bunch of ingredients where I was like, Hey, like these, so these are, these are some of the fun little things we had It's slowly. Let's see how we can, 
figure out how to use them at Exotica here. Nice. Yeah. Um, and we'll get to your spec in, in, in just a little while, but if folks were approaching this, say, in a classical way, I mean, we haven't spoken about rum yet either, but let's, let's talk about vodka first. Yeah. Um, if, if they're doing that, just looking to maybe, yeah, create a classic textbook version of this drink, any tips on what vodka they should be using? Like, do, do you get into yeah, basic Yeah, I found a or? really cool vodka that um, I use in the Yellow Tang at Sunken Harbor because the Yellow Tang is only vodka. It's mm. vodka and banana liqueur, which is the banana liqueur we make. Um, but the vodka is, uh, I'm, I'm not sure if you've had it, it's called Black Cow. Yes, I have. Yeah. New Zealand? No, it's no. from England. Ah, from uh, England. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's, sorry. A, it's from a dairy. It's made from basically, you know, leftover. It's whey protein. Yeah, whey and milk, yeah. you know. Um, they were a dairy first and then figured out that everything left over from making that stuff, you can make a really nice, uh, you know, distilled spirit. And the cool thing is, is that it's neutral in flavor, but it's insane on the texture. And it's great for, you know, for this, because, you know, you still get that drying element but you're also getting like a nice roundness, which which rounds out the, the texture of the pineapple. Nice. But yeah, in a classical way, you this is really the same style of drink as like a Garibaldi. Like think about like juice highballs, right? Is, you know, Harry made like a fancied gussied up version of that. Like, you know, let, more complicated than like a salty dog or a Garibaldi. But still, it was, it's, you know, it's, it runs on, you know, three ounces of juice and then just, a, you know, little accents here and there. You know, you can then take this drink to the next level if you decide to shake it or flash blend it. But, you know, then you're almost stepping more outside of the highball territory into more of a cocktail at mm -hmm. that point. So it depends on like what your mood is, what your thing is. And I, I feel like you could see at some point, you know, a built version of this drink with like fluffy pineapple juice, right? Yeah. Or, you know, where it's like the pineapple's like coming straight out of the juicer. You know, it's definitely, there's like options. For me, I, I like it as in the sort of Tiki Tea style, but... I, I think there's, a, you know, and I've seen other people do it up, shaken, before. Um, I'd John, like to have that version. Uh, John, John DeBerry has a oh, version yeah? of it. Yeah, that, like that. Um, and, yeah, you know, so I think the general idea of, like, citrus, pineapple, and, you know, light spirits, like, there's so many ways to go so about it. So many avenues, yeah. Um, I think Broken Shed was the one I was thinking of, by the way, there. The the, the other one that's like that, the, the the vodka that's from New Zealand. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. sure. Sorry, yeah. No, I, I think the, the, the way milk-based spirits is, is so cool. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a really, you know, I think, I hope you see more of it. Yeah. yeah. Well, Aaron Goldfarb, friend of the show here, uh, he has an article about that on Vinepair about Chobani. And, uh, oh, sure. Yeah. So go check that one out. Yeah. Goldfarb, Chobani. Um, Google that. You'll find it pretty easily. Um, rum. Yeah. Surprised that this is the one we've landed at last. I think that says more about the drink than than, than anything else. But no, it's not, true. Yeah. yeah. And we, you know, we touched on it a little bit before. I think it's what you're looking for. For me, I want something, you know, in the, in the rum world that exists right now, I want those like heavier aged filtered whites, you know. So you're looking at, you know, things like Florida Kanye, Denison, three-year, Plantation Three Star. Originally, when we uh, spec'd the drink out, it was Plantation Three Star. Uh, I've switched to Denison White at this point. Um, um, not saying one is worse than the other. It's just I go through a lot of Denison mm -hmm. at Sunken Harbor Club, and um, I, I use it for a lot of things. So mm -hmm. it works, you know, for what I have. But you know, Florida Kanye has this also this butteriness to it which I think also would probably lend some nice texture to the drink, mm -hmm. you know, in addition to, you know, if you use something like a black cow, it'd be a very, very milky, you know, yeah. kind of juicy drink. Um, so all three molasses-based rums there. Um, Plantation is from? Well, they use uh, a blend of three. They use a blend of three. The three stars of the Caribbean. That's what the three yeah. stars are. Yeah, oh. Jamaica, uh, Trinidad, and Barbados, I believe. Nice. Yeah, and then Denison is also a blend. But they're a Netherlands-based company? Am I making that up? 
You could be right. Yeah. I'm trying to remember. Yeah. Ownership and all that yes. stuff. But, yes. but they take, they, they take some Jamaican rum yeah, yeah. and then some lighter styles and, you know, blend it to make a three, three year. So we're not just talking know. like column still molasses based. Like we're talking, yeah, that, you know, like these are, you know, that, that speaks to the point at the beginning there of blending rums too, right? Like these are the pre-blended yeah. ones arriving already, right? Like. Yeah, and I would say if you want to go like one step funkier, because you know you 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 could take this in that direction if you wanted. Um, Banks, because you know Banks has so many styles to it. I've I've done you know when Jimmy and I were really at Exotica going, we did a, you know a cocktail class at Dear Irving talking about some of the drinks we were doing at Exotica, and um, Banks was kind enough to lend us some product for that. So and the drink works great with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, nice. Um, but yeah, maybe not one of those ones where you're going to have the diehards going like, no, I, I want a, a, you know, like a large proportion of funk or, you know, like, um, you know, I've thought about what, you know, funk is and drinks and, and whatnot for a while. And I think the best, uh, metaphor is that it, it's, it's like hops, right? Where it's like, there are things, there are times where it's like hops in beer, you want to be in, intentional and like have a double IPA, but it's like not every beer has to be yep. that. Has right? to be that, yeah. You know, and I think that that helped because I worked at Prime Eats for a while where like the people buying the beer, you know, were working with, you know, German styles and, and you know, in addition to the, you know, crazier, hoppier Brooklyn stuff, but they were like, look, you can't have a menu that's just all, all this. So right? true, yeah. You know? Yeah. No, that's great. I think that's perfect. Um, I think we are ready now for you to talk us through preparation of this drink yeah. and the spec you would use. And sometimes it's difficult there, especially, you know, after we've had a conversation like this where, you you know, you really laid out all these different avenues you can go down or these, you know, theories or interpretations of the drink. I'm going to say, can you talk us through and give us the spec for your interpretation of a classic Blue Hawaii there? I'm hoping that's what you were thinking when you were coming to the oh, show. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah. Um, Okay, well, so yeah, we're gonna we're gonna flash blend this drink. So we're gonna build it in a large tin. Um, due to my years of working with Dave Arnold at Existing Conditions, the standard operating procedure now for anybody that works at Sunken Harbor Club is to start with some salt in your drink. Um, there's very few drinks we don't salt, um, and salt, you know, rounds out citrus flavors. Uh, it helps bring sweetness. I think the the, the fastest way to explain why it's effective in tropical drinks is think about the sort of layering of sweet and sour in cocktails. Sometimes like young bartenders will get in the mistake of like over acidizing and then, and then compensating with more sugar and this and that. If you add salt, you tend to be able to bring all of those things down because you're amplifying the flavors that are there. So you don't necessarily have to go for an ounce of, of, uh, acid or, you know, what have you. So we start with salt. Um, nowadays I will use a teaspoon of gum syrup, but you can also use cane syrup just to give a little bit of body and texture, uh, just some neutral sugar. Um, then a half ounce of fresh lemon juice, um, then a half ounce of lime punch syrup, then an ounce and a half of pineapple, and then three quarter of a you know, we'll call it heavy white, heavy white rum. And then uh, three quarter of, if you want to be traditional, uh, you know, go with uh, something like black cow. And then if you want to add that coconut element from the blue Hawaiian, um, you would do three quarters of an ounce of uh, coconut oil washed gin. And you know what, there's a gin on the market now that you could buy if you don't even want to, you know, make the gin, which is bimini, bimini coconut. And it works great. Um, you know, you get some other flavors from Bimini because it has hops and some other stuff, but it's, it, it works. It works in that drink. That's um, really cool. Yeah. And then we flash blend with a, uh, cup of crushed ice. So about eight ounces and we pour it into a hurricane glass. I think hurricane glass is the most elegant, uh, you know, glass choice for, uh, this cocktail, but we pour over four ounces of crushed ice. So you see with some flash blending that people put all the ice in the tin, we tend to cut 
the ice in sort of like two thirds, one third, where one third is in the glass and two thirds is in the tin. The idea is you get a little bit more aeration and then you're getting some like unmolested ice in the bottom that can, you know, just work as dilution over time. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the garnish, I mean, you can go really, you should go over the top. This is an over, to- over the top drink. So mm-hmm. um, we take pineapple leaves. We actually cut them from the bottom so that they have a gradient. When we garnish with them, they start white and end green, which is really cool. Nice. Um, and then we always put a pineapple wedge, uh, an orchid, as Harry would do. And then uh, sometimes we do an umbrella as well to, you know, put a nod to Harry. Try to try to make it a blue umbrella if you can. Yeah. <laughs> That's <laughs> wonderful. Um, one, one final question there, the salt that you mentioned at the beginning, yeah. how much salt are you adding it's about, there? It's like a 20% solution. So it's, you know, if, if you're to make it at home and you have a little scale, it's 80 grams of water, 20 grams of, of salt, and, you know, it'll dissolve. Um, kosher is, is, is better. Um, but, uh, yeah, uh, it's about five drops. Five yeah, drops, yeah. If you have a very small dropper, it's five. If it's mm-hmm. a big dropper, like do, do less. Perfect. Yeah. It sounds wonderful. So, yeah, we've had the glassware there, the garnish. Any final thoughts on the, on the Blue Hawaii today or anything well, else? It's, you know, it's funny because I, I had I had to sort of shelf it for a while because it was on the menu at Rain's. Um, you know, we, they had an exotica section so that when the pop-up wasn't going on, because we did the pop-up for about you know, every two to three months and we would do a new menu every time. But, um, you know, they wanted something day to day so that when like Jimmy and, uh, Andres, who's now on the team at Sunken Harbor as well, he, he was behind the bar at Reigns, you know, they wanted something to show people like this is the pop-up so that, you know, when it happened, everyone knew. So they, on their regular menu, it ran for, I think like two years, right, right, right up until COVID. And, you know, but when I opened Sunken, I was like, I can't, I don't want to just put this on the menu again, but it was fun to reinterpret it as the yellow tang and, you know, to see where this sort of like juicy but dry format can go. And, you know, I I encourage people to think about it more because like I think the big heavy hitters of tiki and tropical are, you know, are always going to be these like spiced, like kick you in the butt kind of drinks, right? But like... The thing is, is that in the old menus of Don and, you know, his competitors, there was always this, you know, uh, separation of like light, medium and heavy drinks. And it's like sometimes like, you know, bars need to think about like the lower end you know, alcohol options of, of this genre because there's just people that, you know, at, at Sunken, we divided the menu that way and people really appreciate it where they're like, okay. I have a long night. I'm only staying in the like light drinks, which we call in the shallows. And then there are other people that are like, I've had a really bad day. I need to go to the abyss, you know? So, (laughs) yeah. And like, yeah, blue Hawaii would definitely like be in the lighter end of the spectrum, Mm -hmm. but you know, a lot of people appreciate it. And if folks were to swing by, you said you maybe don't have that on the menu. Obviously, you have the yellow tang, but you also, if folks are coming by, you're able to make this anyway. Yeah, yeah we yeah. have we have all the ingredients have for all it. The ingredients, yeah. and also, I believe this this drink might be featuring in your upcoming book. Can you tell us about that? Yes, yeah. So um, during COVID, um, I had a lot of time to reevaluate um, some of my drinks and. Um, you know, I just worked two years at existing conditions where I learned a hell of a lot from Don Lee and Dave Arnold and was able to, you know, learn the sort of mechanics of what makes cocktails good. You know, like why is lemon juice this acidic? Why is, you know, this syrup work this way? Um, and so I just, you know, at the start of COVID, like looked at everything that I'd done through Exotica and Slowly Shirley and, you know, even Prime Eats drinks and just, you know, started reevaluating. And then at the time, uh, my co-author f- for this book, Ben Schaefer, he had, he had written the Dead Rabbit book originally, and he has a publication called The Rum Reader. He approached me and he wanted to do this like small series of books on New York cocktail culture. And he just wanted to write about Exotica. And he was like, you know, email me back, give me some drink ideas. And, you know, it'll be like a small little kind of book in a series. 
And then I emailed him back a outline for like a 230 page book. And then, <laughs> um, he, he, then responded and he's like, I think I'm going to scrap the other idea. Let's just do this. That's cool. Yeah. And, you know, it started, that started in the summer of 2020. And, you know, um, now it is a book called Tropical Standard. It is going to be coming out in May of 2023. Um, and yeah, it really is. The book is about uh, giving you the tools and techniques to make these types of drinks better. So, you know, the first chapter is all about how to use flash blending, how, you know, in, in various styles, egg white drinks, you know, swizzles, et cetera. And then later on it gets into newer techniques like acid adjusting, you know, all the stuff that, you know, existing conditions is famous for. There's a huge section of like, okay, what are some new things that tropical drinks can do like stirred and savory? And then, at the end, the reward for learning all of these techniques is that there's like a tribute section where we do tributes to the Mai Kai, to Tiki T, Ray Buen, um, and Harry Yee has a section. We do the this uh, Blue Hawaii is in there, but uh, also a riff on the banana daiquiri as well. Nice. Yeah. Fantastic. Looking forward to that one. Um, those, are, those are tips that I'm... You know, I don't have the flash blender, but I'm not I'm not ruling it out in my future. So uh, <laughs> I want to learn yeah. how to learn. Want to learn how to use one? Um, amazing. All right. How about we jump into the next and final section of the show, Garrett, where we get to know yourself more as a bartender and a drinker. And those are our yeah, weekly recurring exciting. questions. <laughs> <laughs> we'll start with question number one. What style or category of spirit? I feel like I know where this one's going. Typically enjoys the most real estate on your back bar. Yeah, it's Jamaican rum specifically. Um, every other spot in in our little rum area has like a couple different styles. And uh, Agricole has its own shelf too, but like the Jamaican shelf is overflowing. And because I think what's cool about it is is Jamaican specifically, it's like, equally designed for cocktails as it is for sipping. And then there's other styles where it's like more about like, you know, sipping and less about cocktails. And so I think that's, what's exciting to me as a bartender. And, and the other thing is I think Jamaican can layer really well where it's like, you know, my, my zombie, for example, my 34 is just all Jamaican. It's in, and it, I, I cut other styles out because there's enough diversity in Jamaican rum now that, you know, there's, there's bottles that are wildly different, like something like Rumbar Gold, you know, versus, uh, you know, Smith and Cross versus Karuba, like mm -hmm. all wildly different and all can like work in harmony with mm -hmm. one another. Amazing. Question number two, which ingredient or tool do you think is the most undervalued in a bartender's arsenal? Uh, okay, well, the expensive answer is is a Hamilton Beach flash blender, <laughs> but uh, the cheap answer I'll give I'll give one that's like you know a easy Amazon buy, and we talk about this in Tropical Standard is um, uh, milk frother. Milk frother, you know, you can use to uh, emulsify your egg white sours, but um, we talk about how it can be used as a way to melt sugar into citrus. So the biggest problem with the daiquiri is that, you know, normally you're adding a half ounce of water to, you know, a white rum, right? And in the book, we explain that if you use a milk frother and a certain amount of sugar, you can take that half an ounce of water out and you have a much cleaner, much crisper cocktail. If you get a daiquiri at Sunken Harbor Club, in, unless it's like a very overproof spirit, it's going to be with sugar, not not simple syrup, and mm -hmm. and it's it makes a huge difference because more subtle spirits, uh, you can taste them more in this format, mm -hmm. you know, and like like you know rums that sort of bartenders write off where they're like oh it's just you know just vodka with, uh, that that's made from you know molasses it's like no it's not mm -hmm. it's just that we've been overwatering them, and obviously stating the bleeding obvious here, but you know you can't heat up citrus to put in the sugar uh, to right. otherwise dissolve yeah, yeah. it right yeah. like this so is like the, this, why the a little bit of elbow grease and and that's yeah. a that's a technique i picked up from uh Danielle Delapoya who has a bar now in uh Miami called Exotico um but he originally was doing this uh at uh his bar in Bologna called New Lounge and you know i just saw that and i was like wow this is really smart super smart i'd never heard about that or come across yeah. that before today 
great one. And you know what? I just got a little milk frother from a little work raffle here we had. So oh, uh, awesome. now yeah. I know what I'm using that for because I don't take milk in my coffee. Um, <laughs> question number three. What's the most important piece of advice you've received while working in this industry? Um, yeah, I've heard... I've, I've Previous guest of the show, uh, Richie Bacato, he said this a lot uh, in training his bartenders and I've heard him say in interviews like you have to know a couple well two things I've heard from him that I really liked one is like you know as bartenders we're servers not servants and you know you need to know you need to remind yourself of that when you know things can get hairy or you know a guest is being out of control and all that um and then um, the other is is knowing you know a, a good bartender knows when someone comes to drink or someone wants to talk and you know respecting that need and that want and i think you know i think that's a, a really good advice yeah yeah that that kind of sixth sense reading the room reading the guests there and just being like yeah what is what are they looking for and yeah, yeah. <laughs> um question number 4 penultimate one here if you could only visit one last bar in your life what would it be yeah, it's t- it, it, that that's a tough question, <laughs> but because like for me, it's like I I mean, if like time and space aren't a factor, um, I would you know there's there's definitely some bars from the past I'd be interested in. I'd be interested in the early Maikai um, when Mariano Liquidine was running it, and like tasting what an early Black Magic would be because that's a that's a really interesting cocktail. We have a riff on it in the book. Um, that's, that's one of those secret drinks that Jeff, uh, Barry has not unearthed yet. Like Mike Kai has that under lock and key. So it'd be cool to taste the original, original version of it. Um, I feel like the coolest scene for a vintage bar was probably Steve Crane's Luau in Beverly Hills. Cause you heard that, you know, the Rat Pack would hang out there, a lot of Hollywood stars. And then from a bartender's perspective, apparently it was the hardest, of the three to work in, it was harder than Don the Beachcomber or Trader Vic because of how fast, how much volume was going on. And so it would be, you know, from a service standpoint, it'd be really interesting. And then I would say like, personally, what really got me into like, okay, like I have to do this with my life. One of the first bars I ever went to that I really enjoyed, but did not have a lot of time with because I moved back to New York. I had a brief period of time after college where I was in Los Angeles for a couple months um, Kanye Rum Bar, which is in downtown LA, it was a members only bar at first, and it was run by uh, Alan Katz, not the Alan Katz from New York Distilling. Um, this this one refers to himself as the evil Alan Katz. So um, <laughs> he recently opened Here's Looking at You in LA, and then moved to Vegas, but that bar had really innovative stuff and it would be interesting to go back and see it now that I know what I know, because when I was there, you know, I was just starting out and tasting drinks, but like that bar was doing like pandan drinks in like 2011 Jeez. and like doing like things like, you know, I mean stuff that still would be innovative today. Like, you know, I remember they had a drink with like Nissan and zucchini juice and Galliana, like, you know, like crazy stuff. And like, the thing is, is like, Every time I had one of those drinks, it, it worked. Like they were really good at being historic and being like, okay, this is a, tr- a riff on a Charles H. Baker drink, but then like just taking it to these like insane levels. So like, I would love more time at mm-hmm. that bar because I didn't, I didn't nearly get enough. Mm-hmm. Great choices. Final question for you today: If you knew that the next cocktail you drank was going to be your last, what would you order or make? Yeah, it's uh, it's, <laughs> it's tough because, uh, like, weir- weirdly enough, I would say, um, you know, most people don't know I am like on my time off sometimes, like a martini person. Um, but that probably wouldn't be my answer. I probably would want a larger tropical drink. It might be a Black Magic if because it's big enough that I can contemplate existence for a while. <laughs> Um, it's got some caffeine, so it's like, you know, I can get some final adrenaline before, you know, leaving mm-hmm. <laughs> leaving this plane of existence. Um, yeah, you know, and I, I guess if it was like one of my own, you know, maybe making myself a Mai Tai or something, you know, because I've worked on that spec for a long time too. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Amazing. And folks, 
If you want to know more about that spec, I'm guessing it might be in tropical standard. Look, yeah. I would say, though, if I wanted to like be optimistic about you know the afterlife, I, it, it may be a blue Hawaii. It depends on the day. Mm-hmm. I'm very much a creature of mood, <laughs> you know. Well, Garrett, thanks so much for joining us today. And hey, cheers to Harry. Yeah. 104 years of 104 excellence. 104 years. We'll see you again soon for the Blue Curacao episode. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds great. Cheers. Okay, I know what you're thinking, folks. That was a lot of info. But here's the good news. Every single episode of Vinepair's Cocktail College is published on vinepair.com as a transcript. So you can check it out there all over again. If you enjoy listening to the show anywhere near as much as we enjoy making it, go ahead and hit subscribe. And please leave a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts, whether that's Apple, Spotify, or Stitcher. And please tell your friends. Now for the credits. Cocktail College is recorded in New York City and produced by myself and Darby Seaside, who also composed our awesome theme music. Just give that a listen, folks. I also want to give a huge shout out to everyone on the Vinepair team, especially co-founders Adam Teeter and Josh Mallon, editor-in-chief Joanna Sherino, and art director Daniel Grinberg, who designed our killer logo. Finally, thank you, listener, for making it this far and for giving this whole thing a purpose. Until next time.